you remain standing, we're going to read uh, some scripture. This is from Acts chapter 12, and uh, for uh, just a few verses here uh, from Acts chapter 12. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were there, worshiping the Lord and fasting, verses 2 and 3, I'm going to add to this, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Lord, thank you that um, we can talk to you at any time. Thank you for the privilege of prayer. Lord, uh, open up our, our, our eyes and hearts and minds to your word now, and we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to jump into the book of Acts, and we're going to put this on, uh, on high speed here. So we have been studying the, the book of Acts, uh, written by Dr. Luke, and uh, covers a period of about 30 to 35 years in the first century. And it's really the story of the birth of the church and the growth of the church. And if you've been with us through uh, the study of the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is the key verse. It's actually the outline of the book. And here's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Dr. Luke writes these words. These are Jesus' words to his disciples. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so there's the outline of the book. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost happened, and the church was born, and Peter preaches that great sermon, and 3,000 people come into God's kingdom. And the first six chapters of the book of Acts center all around Jerusalem. That's where the church began. But then the church began to expand, and what God used to expand the church was persecution. A young man by the name of Saul was the chief persecutor of the church, and he was arresting Christians, and he was uh, having Christians put to death. We read about the first Christian martyr. His name was Stephen. And so the church then, because of persecution, they leave and they move out from Jerusalem and they go to the surrounding area, Judea and Samaria. But as they go, they share the gospel and the church grows. And that's chapters 7 through 12. When we come to chapter 13, we come to the section of uh, the outline of the book of Acts, and that's where we're going to be this morning, uh, the section that talks about the gospel going to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the earth. And uh, God used a young man by the name of Saul who became Paul to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so when you go through the book of Acts, there's a little bit of transition. The first 12 chapters, Peter is a key uh, person. When you get to chapter 13 through the rest of the book, the focus turns to a man by the name of Saul who took on a Roman name by the name of Paul. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at our outline, and we're going to start by thinking about the Spirit's leading, the Spirit's leading. And let me just go back to our verses that we read in chapter 12, verse 25. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So what was their mission? 
Well, we looked at uh, last week that Paul and Barnabas are in a city called Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. They're there for one year. They're preaching and teaching and developing the church there in Antioch, which happened to be a very large city in the first century. It was the third largest city behind Rome and Alexandria, population of about 500,000 people. And so Paul and Barnabas are there, and there's this uh, thriving church with new believers, and they realize through a prophet who stands up and says there's going to be a great famine coming soon. And so those new believers took up an offering And they sent it with Paul and Barnabas down to the the churches in Jerusalem to meet their needs, people that they'd never met before. But that's what is part of the body of Christ, that we're all part of one body. And so here Paul and Barnabas take that offering from these new believers, and they take it down to the churches in Jerusalem. And uh, they share that gift with them, and then they make their way back to Antioch. By the way, that would have been a 600-mile round trip. Uh, That would have been quite a challenge in uh, traveling in that day. But So now Paul and Barnabas have made their way back to Antioch, and uh, here's what's happening. It says they're also taking with them John, also called Mark. And we'll learn a little bit about John a little bit later, but this was Barnabas' cousin. Colossians 4.10 tells us that. So they take Barnabas' cousin, John Mark, This is now the church at Antioch. There were prophets and teachers. They list five of them. Here they are, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manian, and Saul. So here's kind of the leadership team of the church. Five five names. Paul and Saul and Barnabas are, are two of the leaders there in the church at Antioch. What were they doing? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the church is being taught by Paul and Barnabas. They're worshiping, they're fasting, and in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit begins to move. And he takes two of those leaders out of the church of Antioch, Saul and Barnabas, and says, set them aside for the work that I have called them to. And so we come to the sending then, and that happens in verse 3. So after they had fasted and prayed, this is the church at Antioch, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. They had a commissioning service. I don't know if you've ever been to a commissioning service. I've been to several of them. Uh, there, when the church comes alongside people that are set apart for a special ministry and they pray for them and they send, put their hands on them and they let them know, we are behind you. We will be praying for you. We will be behind you financially. Uh, we're with you in this new ministry. And so the church puts their hands on Saul and Barnabas and they send them off. By the way, Where do missionaries come from? These are the first missionaries. You know where missionaries come from? (laughs) Local churches, (laughs) right where you're sitting. That's where missionaries come from, is God works in a person's life and sets them aside for a special work of ministry. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 9, 36 and 37, about 
the mission field and the world, the harvest is plentiful. There's 8 billion people on our planet. The labors are few. Here's how Jesus tells us to pray. If you might say, well, I don't know what to pray about. Here's Jesus' suggestion. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth what? Workers and laborers into the harvest field. We, we need people who are willing to take the good news of the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, right where we live, our surrounding area, and to the ends of the earth. That's a great prayer for our local church as well. We're having a, our uh, annual meeting next Sunday. Our nominating committees met several times, and we go through this every year, and we begin to pray, Lord, um, we need some people who are willing to serve the local church in a specific office. This year we had 11 slots to fill. And I'm so grateful, and hopefully you've been praying that uh, uh, as of just a, a week or so ago, uh, every one of those positions is, is filled, and uh, Lord willing, we will vote them into office next Sunday. If you vote no, we're going to ask you to serve, by the way. No, no, we, we, we won't. No. You vote as God leads you. But, yeah, we, we, need, we need, our church could not function without people willing to, willing to serve. We not only need workers in Jerusalem, but we need laborers right in our own country. In two weeks, a young lady by the name of Hannah Cypress is going to be with us. Hannah contacted me. She's with uh, Ethnos 360. Uh, she's friends of Joe and Sharon Goodman. She lives in Jones, Michigan, and Joe and Sharon Goodman uh, are down in Florida. They connected, and they said, hey, why don't you contact uh, Community Bible Church and, and uh, just uh, connect with those folks? And so... Uh, Hannah emailed me, and you're going to hear her story in a couple weeks. And uh, she's going to serve, uh, called to serve right there in the home office in Sanford, Florida. Maybe not a, a very uh, glamorous uh, job assignment. She's uh, going to work in the office and also work in the food service department, but a much needed ministry. And we need workers to do that. We need workers to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so next Sunday, we're going to ask you to uh, take on a new missionary family that we're already acquainted with, John and Becky Shirley. And John's been here a couple times, and we've partnered with them, and they're in the Ministry of Rescuing Children in Haiti and the Dominican Republic and uh, trying to get into the field of, of India and... Uh, they serve in a ministry called Live Global. And we're going to ask you to partner with them so the gospel can get to the ends of, of the earth. Well, that's, uh, that's the sending. Uh, Saul and Barnabas are sent out. But next we come to the salvation of Sergius Paulus. The salvation of Sergius Paulus. So here's the first missionary journey, uh, beginning in verse 4, the two of them. Saul and Barnabas, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia. Uh, so from Antioch to Seleucia is a 16-mile trip. And there is uh, Seleucia is a coastal city on the Mediterranean Sea. And they sailed from there to Cyprus. So they sail from Seleucia, and they arrive on the island of Cyprus. And they begin their ministry there. 
This is when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos, which is on the western side of the island. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So here's Saul and Barnabas. They're on this first missionary journey. They travel from Seleucia. They're on the island of Cyprus. They go into the synagogue and they begin to share God's truth in the synagogue. And now they are on the other end of the island. And uh, there's a fellow who's called a sorcerer, a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet. And his name is Bar-Jesus. That means son of Jesus or son of Savior is what that uh, name means. He was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. So he was an attendant to the appointed Roman governor of the island of Cyprus. Uh, the proconsul, this is verse 7, an intelligent man sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. So here's this government official who's overseeing the island of Cyprus, and he sends for Paul and Barnabas, and he wants to hear the word of God. That would be like us getting an invitation from um, Governor Whitmer and Lansing and saying, hey, would you come up and let's do a Bible study together. And so uh, Saul and Barnabas are, are there, and they're meeting with this man by the name of Sergius Paulus. Notice what happens. But Elamas... The sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Here we have the battle between good and evil. Saul and Barnabas are there, what, to share God's truth with this Roman official. And there's a sorcerer by the name of Bar-Jesus. He's also called Elamas, and he's opposing them. We know that there's a spiritual battle going on in our world. And notice what happens. Then Saul, who's also called Paul, there's the name switch. First time now that Saul is called Paul. That's his Roman name. Saul is his Jewish name. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elamas and said, You are a child of the devil. Paul's not pulling any punches here. He's looking at a sorcerer. He's looking at an evil person. And there is evil in our world today, isn't there, as we listen to the news and what's happening. And Paul looks right at him. He says, you are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And so uh, Paul looks right at him and says, you're an evil man. You're, you're a child of the devil. Will you stop opposing the gospel? And by the way, you're going to be blind. And blindness comes on this, uh, this individual uh, by the name of Elamas. And he's uh, now being led around in his blindness. It says in verse 12, but notice when the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, saw what had happened, he believed... 
for he was amazed about the teaching of the Lord. So here we read of one convert in their first missionary journey on the island of Cyprus. Uh, Maybe there were other converts, but we only read about this one, that the Roman governor, the Roman-appointed official of Cyprus, came to faith in Jesus, the salvation of Sergius Paulus. Well, we're going to look at the next part of this uh, missionary journey at, at another time. Uh, we'll pick it up in, in verse 13. Something very interesting happens is that uh, John Mark, who is Barnabas's cousin, um, he, he deserts Paul and he deserts uh, Barnabas and it becomes a point of contention. And uh, so we'll, we'll, look at that, uh, we'll look at that next week. But this morning we want to think about in our next 10 minutes or so, just some life lessons from the story of Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey and their time in Cyprus. So let's look at lesson number one, is this. Lesson number one, we need to be sensitive and open to the guidance and leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need to be sensitive and open to the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our life. So how did we come up with the first missionaries? It's because the Spirit was leading, the Spirit was sending. And in fact, in Acts 13.2, it says, The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, was that an audible voice? I don't know. Um, In my Christian journey, I've never heard an audible voice, but some people have. But we need to be sensitive to God's leading in our life. Because we're either leading a self-directed life or we're leading a spirit-directed, God-directed life. And so you might say, well, how do I know? How do I know what, what God is leading? How can I be sensitive to the ministry of the Holy Spirit? We read in the Old Testament that when the children of Israel were in their wilderness wanderings and they wandered in the wilderness for almost 40 years, all they had to do was look up because there was a cloud of, um, a cloud by day and a cloud of fire by night. When that cloud moved, the Israelites moved. And that's how they knew where to go. And sometimes in our lives, we wish it would be kind of as simple as that. But we need to be sensitive and open to the guidance of God in our life. And here's the key. The more you know someone, the more you know their desires and their wishes. The more we know God, the more we know God and who he is, the more sensitive we will be to knowing how he is leading in our life. How does God primarily lead us today? God primarily leads us through his word. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It shows me the direction that I should go. And so uh, we are directed, the more we know God, the more we know God's word, the more we can be sensitive to his leading and direction in our life. You see, there's certain things in in the Bible that God clearly tells us that we don't need to pray about. We simply need to obey. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 uh, says, let's 
consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So when we come together as a church family, one of the things we're to do is to encourage one another to love and good deeds. Love and good deeds like change your world and love and good deeds like Samaritan's Purse Operation Christmas Child. And spur on to loving one another, like getting together for a Thanksgiving meal and for a Christmas celebration. We're to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We don't have to pray about that. We simply need to obey. God also leads through godly counsel. Proverbs says there's safety in a multitude of counselors. And I would add the adjective godly there. You want to find godly counsel, people who know God's word. God also leads through circumstances. He uses circumstances to open doors and to close doors. And so uh, we need to be sensitive and open to the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, Secondly, God has called and gifted every believer to do good works. God has called and gifted every believer to do good works. Notice the description of the calling in uh, Barnabas and Saul's life, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I've called them. I've got a job and an assignment for Saul, who became Paul, and Barnabas to do. We read in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah, and I set you apart as a prophet. And so God has called each of us and gifted each of us for good work. Now, we're not saved by good works. The Bible is very clear about that. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But we are saved to do good works. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where we read, We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so God has called and gifted each believer to do good works. And ministry is a team effort, isn't it? Uh, They didn't send out uh, Paul alone. They didn't send out Barnabas alone. They sent him out in groups. It was Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. And ministry is a team effort. But we are to uh, find our giftedness and be involved in doing good works. Here's here's the third one and the last one this morning, life lesson number three. Always remember that the Christian life involves spiritual warfare. Always remember that the Christian life and ministry as well involves spiritual warfare. Isn't it interesting that when Paul and Barnabas uh, reached uh, Paphos and the Roman governor there Uh, wanted to have this study with them, Uh, guess who else got busy? The opposition, Satan. And they ran into Alamos. They ran into this this sorcerer that tried to dissuade them. And so the scripture makes it very clear. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, here's what Paul writes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's It's not a physical enemy. Our battle is a spiritual enemy. That's why prayer is so important. 
Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil. There's where the battle is. It's a spiritual battle. Satan is out there, and the last thing he wants you to do this morning is to be here. The last place he wants you to, to, to get involved with is some sort of ministry and carrying out the good news of the gospel. And so there's a spiritual battle that's going on. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes to the Corinthian believers, and he talks about this spiritual battle. In verse 4, he says, The God of this age, that's Satan, it's the uh, lowercase g, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. You ever wonder, like, why don't more people come to Jesus? Why don't more people accept the, the beautiful sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for their sins? Because there's a spiritual battle going on. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. And so there's a spiritual battle going on. And it's the powers of Satan and his forces. And he's called the great deceiver. And he's very deceptive. He's called the the father of lies when he speaks. He's always lying. A lot of times he mixes truth with lies. But Satan has a very subtle strategy. And so Paul, when he writes this section in Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about spiritual warfare and talks about put on the the full armor of God. Um, He says, you need to be aware, verse 11, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. It's the word there is methodia, the, the Satan's methods. We need to be aware of how the enemy works. And it's in a very subtle way. Oftentimes it's through busyness. Uh, We get so busy in our lives that we just don't have time for things that are more important, like reading God's Word and praying and being a part of a church family. One of his subtle strategies is isolation. Satan loves to isolate Christians from other Christians. In fact, Charles Swindoll writes this, God never intended anyone to sail their own boat without assistance through the uncharted waters of life or ministry. God never intended any solo Christian to try to walk and live the Christian life on their own. He wants it done in community. He goes on to say, all of us need help. And the greater the task, the more we need help. All you have to do is look at Elijah in the Old Testament. Remember the story of Elijah, and he had this great encounter with the the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel, and all of Israel was waiting to see who is the true God, and the God of Israel answers by fire, and there's this great victory. And then what happens to Elijah? Elijah is physically exhausted, and Elijah is isolated, and Elijah is alone, And all of a sudden, Elijah is thinking suicidal thoughts. He says, I think I'm the only one left. I don't think there's many other Christians around, believers. Isolation. Philip Zimbardo from Psychology Today, a Stanford psychologist, not exactly um, in 
Christian circles, but this is what he has to say. I know of no more potent killer than isolationism. There is no more destructive influence on physical and mental health than isolationism. That's why in the New Testament you read the phrase, one another, over a hundred times. And that's when you study the epistles and the Apostle Paul writes and he talks about relationships and Christianity and community. He says, I want you to love one another 16 times in the New Testament. Be devoted to one another, live in harmony with one another, accept one another, serve one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. It's a relationship. And what is Satan's strategy? It's to isolate. And so um, always remember that the Christian life involves spiritual warfare. And God has given us some resources, hasn't he? Uh, they're found here in Ephesians chapter 6. In the spiritual warfare, it's, it's the word of God. There's power in the word of God. The resource of, of prayer. Uh, the resource of the full armor of God. The resource of the body of Christ. And so um, we're in a spiritual battle, and God has given us the resources. Thank God that the Scripture says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Well, those are three life lessons. Just quickly as we close, three action steps. Uh, we can ask ourselves the question, how can I be an active part of getting the gospel to the ends of the earth? Uh, that's our global assignment and so uh, that's why we ask you to be involved in these, these projects. Uh, this, is, this is a great way to do it, change your world, by, by simply putting some change in here to get the gospel out. Uh, Samaritan's Purse, supporting missionaries, uh, sharing God's word and sharing the gospel is a great way to partner, to be a part of the body of Christ, to pray, as Matthew 9 says, pray that the Lord would send workers into the harvest field. Secondly, we want to ask the question, how can I be sensitive to God's leading? And that is to become a student of God's word. And uh, the more you know God and the more you know God's word, the clearer God's leading and direction will be in your life. And so the Apostle Paul starts out on missionary journey number one. And by the time we get to the book of Acts, the gospel is to the ends of the earth. And God uses people to do that. And God wants to use you and me to not only get the gospel out right where we live, but to the ends of the earth. Let's, uh, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for um, the willingness of people to be sensitive to your leading and guiding and direction in their life. Lord, I thank you for the 12 missionary families that we have the privilege of praying for and supporting through Community Bible Church. And Lord, we uh, thank you for them and we uh, pray that we would continue to stand with them in prayer and financial support. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be uh, bold and looking for ways to continue to partner to get the gospel out, whether it's through Change Your World or Operation Christmas Child, or inviting someone to Awana, or sharing the gospel with them. Lord, help us to be bold in doing that. Help us to realize there's a spiritual battle that's going on in our world today. And Lord, help us to be bold in our prayers, 
that the spirit of the evil one would not claim one of our kids or one of our grandkids, Lord, that they would come to know Jesus as their Savior and walk with you their whole life. Lord, I pray that even today you would help us to be sensitive to the guidance and direction of your spirit in our life. And may may you use us for your kingdom and your glory. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.